Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Pastor Ken. You know, this that we have is a treasure. It is, it is God's Word. And that means that this is His divine self-disclosure to us. This is what He wants us to know about Himself and about how, how we may know Him. So I want you to imagine that you believe this, but you didn't have access to it. If that was the case, how much would you be willing to pay for a Bible if you had never had one before, if you had never read it before, but you believed that it was indeed God's Word and His self-disclosure? What would you be willing to do to get your hands on one, even for an hour? Well, maybe right now we're not treasuring God's Word as much as we should in our lives. And let me just encourage you, don't let me, this time as we, we, we have together to, to, to study it here, don't let me be a substitute for your daily reading and treasuring of God's Word each week, okay? That, that's where the power is. This is God's self-disclosure. So, so treasure it, friends. Well, this morning we are wrapping the end of a year or so, going through this wonderful book of Hebrews. And this morning we're considering Mystery Man's very last words. This is his benediction. And many would consider these words to be some of the most beautiful words of prayer ever uttered. So here we see words about God, and that is our first category this morning that we're going to look at here as we, as we consider this benediction. These are really words about God. Last week, I was up at Southern Seminary working on my uh, doctoral, my final doctoral seminar. It doesn't mean I'm done yet. I have a lot to do with a thesis still ahead of me. But, um, but I heard a devotion in which I was reminded that we become what we behold. That is, we, we become what we behold. So maybe, maybe you're beholding a whole lot of television, right? You know what? It influences you. We become what we behold. Well, do you want to become more in love with God? If so, let me encourage you to behold your God. And so let's behold Him as we meditate on these last final words of benediction from Mystery Man, because they tell us about God. Verse 20 tells us more about who God is. So let's look at verse 20 again. He writes, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. And so there are four things that I see here in this one verse. I'd just like to walk through them with you this morning that tell us more about who God is so that you can behold him. And consider him, and, and my prayer is that we can all become more like him through faith. Well, he is, first of all, the God of peace. Number one, the God of peace. And have you ever known a truly peaceful person? Somebody who may be able to walk through trauma or an emergency, and yet they, they just have this sense of serenity. They're not, they're not phased. They're not knocked off their horse. Their, their soul is peaceful. Well, that, that is what God is like. God is a God of peace. But not only is God peaceful, 
Here we actually have a, a beautiful and an encouraging description of God's disposition of peace towards us. And, and when I say us, I mean those of us who've, who've given our hearts to Jesus Christ, okay, who've been brought into his family, his children. God looks on us with a disposition of peace. You know, in the very beginning, God placed man and woman in the garden, in a peaceful garden that was, where they lived in a state of peace with God. They, they actually walked with God in the, in the cool of the day in the garden without shame. But we know the tragic story, and that is that Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And ever since that act of rebellion, mankind has not been at peace with God, or frankly, with, with each other. Mankind has been in a state of enmity with God, and frankly, sadly, with one another. And far too often, that state of enmity extends even into the family. But God chose to sacrifice His Son that we might be saved through faith in His death on the cross and in His resurrection from the dead so that we might be brought into a state of peace with God. And that's what we read in, in the book of Romans, which we studied a couple years ago. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we read that, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is, not by our works of righteousness, but by looking to the cross of Christ with a spirit of humility and dependence, believing that He died for us, that his blood covers our sins, right? And, and because of that precious sacrifice, that application of the most valuable commodity in the universe covering us, God looks on us no longer as enemies, but as friends, frankly, as family, as adopted children. And so we have been brought back through faith in Christ into a position to a state of peace with God, such that He looks on us with a peaceful disposition. Now, peace with God is a gift achieved not by our own merit, our own works, our own religiosity, but by Christ on the cross. And it's a gift that He gives to His followers, to His disciples. In fact, Jesus told His disciples in John 14, verse 27, He he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither, them let, them, neither let them be afraid. You know, maybe this very week you've sinned against the Lord, and maybe your conscience has, has felt the weight of that sin, and you've thought, how in the world can God really look on me with tenderness and love and peace, because he sees all. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how. It's because of the, the gospel, the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ. When he sees you, when you are, if you are his child, he is not looking on that sin. He is, he is looking on his precious son, and he is covered. He has wiped out your sin with his blood. And so you can have peace with God. And so Jesus gives us his peace, and, and the reason he's able to assure us of a peaceful disposition from his Father God, it's because Jesus himself isn't dead. It's because he is the resurrected hero. And that's our second point this morning that we see here in this text. Verse 20 reminds us that God raised him from the dead. And so the truth and the hope of the Christian faith 
rests upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can, we can have confidence in the historic truth of the Christian faith because Jesus rose from the dead. We can also have confidence in this standing, this peaceful standing with God because Jesus rose from the dead, proving that, that his death on the cross was sufficient, that God was pleased with that sacrifice, and that he was raised victorious. And so we can walk in victory, and we can have confidence of our future state in heaven because Jesus rose from the dead, and he told us that he went, he, he went ahead of us to prepare a place for us in heaven. So unlike all other religious leaders who've come and gone, and even the great priests of the Old Testament who went before Jesus Christ is alive, and he is the great shepherd of the sheep. That's our third point this morning that we see here in our text. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, in the Old Testament, God had a covenant with the people of Israel. And we know that, that God called leaders to shepherd his flock. And, and there's a rich imagery in the Old Testament of the leader who is supposed to be the shepherd. So Moses was like the shepherd, right? Leading the, the sheep, uh, the Jews, through Sinai to the promised land, right? As he followed the great shepherd, which was Yahweh God. And, and later we see rich imagery of, of David, King David, but the, the shepherd king. And so actually, the more you, you look into it, you see that in the Old Testament, God was calling a, a whole succession of leaders of, of kings to lead his people as shepherds. And there were some good examples, like Moses and David. But there are many bad examples in the Old Testament of, of shepherds who failed to be good shepherds. And so in Ezekiel chapter 34, we see God condemning Israel's shepherds for neglecting and even preying upon, in a predatory way, the sheep that they had been called to lead. And so in Ezekiel chapter 34, God calls down judgment and promises his judgment on these evil and wicked and, and false shepherds, and then he promises in, in verse 15, that I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So that was God's promise in the old covenant for what he was going to do in the new covenant, how, how all of these good shepherds were to point to the final true shepherd, Christ. And Jesus said in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He laid down his life for the sheep. And we need to remember this morning that sheep are not exactly the most brilliant of creatures. In fact, I, I was reminded by, by someone, a, a pastor I read this last week, that, you know, sheep may, be, um, sheep may be proof that evolution is impossible. And, and the reason for that is sheep need shepherds to—they they need care in order to survive. So, you know, the, as the, 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 whole, the whole point is, how in the world could sheep live for millions of years 
with all the predation without man there to provide and, and care for them. That was kind of the point. But here's the point for us, and I think that's a, kind of a decent thing to think about. But the point for us is we are sheep, and, and we are lost without the shepherd. We are not going to survive on our own. Okay, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each has gone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus was the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And so it's fitting that the author would, would choose to close his, his epistle here, his, his letter with Jesus as the great shepherd, as the great shepherd. You know, for most of this letter, he's, he's described Jesus as the great high priest, and, and that he is, and we've talked about that as we've gone through Hebrews. Um, we, we might not think a lot in terms of priestly analogies, as, as you know, we Baptists don't necessarily have priests today, uh, not necessarily part of our daily life here. But this was a key part of the life of God's people in the Old Covenant. And as, 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 as a mystery man who wrote this, this letter is trying to help move these people into a, a, a fixed gaze on Jesus, the, the hero of the new covenant, the true final uh, high priest, we see that Jesus Christ is the great high priest who actually became the sacrifice, right? Because that's what a high priest would do on the day of atonement, would kill an animal and take the blood and would sprinkle that blood in the holy place before God as a, as a picture of, of the sin of the camp, the sin of mankind and, and their need for God's mercy. And here Jesus Christ was that high priest who then offered himself as the sacrifice. And so let's just, as we, as we wrap up this, this amazing book, let's take a few moments to look back at the great themes of Christ, our high priest and our good shepherd in Hebrews. Well, at the very beginning of the book, in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, we see that Jesus Christ is very God of God who came for us. The author writes in Hebrews 1, 3, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins. I, I, I love this because um, here we, we see in just a, a couple words, a whole summary of the gospel, of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus was very God of God, who became a true man, incarnated as a real human, fully human, who endured the same struggles and the same kinds of suffering and the same temptations that we do. So therefore, he's able to sympathize with us. He is empathetic. That's his posture towards us, weak humans. He is sympathetic towards his people, and he's even able to help us in our struggles, we read. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, he knows what it's like to actually really be tempted. 
to really be weak, to really feel like you can't, you can't make it anymore, you can't resist anymore. He knows that feeling, but he never gave in. Hebrews 4, 14 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now, not only has he been there and, and experienced, and, and, wa- and, and not only has he walked in truly human sandals, okay, and, and, and suffered as a full human, and, and not, not pushing that divine turbo boost, as it were, to, to get past the suffering, but truly having to struggle through all of the temptations, even the final temptation to not go through with the cross. He did that by depending on the Holy Spirit as a, hu- as a true man, uh, as an example for us, showing us how to do it, right? Well, well not only did he do all that and, and rise victoriously from the grave, but, but today in heaven, he is interceding for us. That means he is rooting for us, but he is praying for us and reminding his Father uh, when we fail and when we sin that we are covered by his blood. So in Hebrews 7, 24, it says, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, unlike the other priests in the Old Testament. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's pretty humbling, that Jesus' mission today in heaven is interceding for his people who are still alive on this earth, slogging through life, fighting the fight of faith. And so Jesus is the great high priest who offered himself as the final sacrifice, securing for us eternal salvation. He's the high priest who became the the sacrifice. He's the shepherd who became the sheep. That That would be that sacrifice for our sake, for us. And so Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 says, but when, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not, not the tabernacle, not the one made with hands, that is not of this creation, but we're talking about the tabernacle of heaven, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of, of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus said, before he died, that he was the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Well, now that he's risen, mystery man here says, you know what? That label is not good enough. Good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And that's what we see here. He is the great shepherd, and he's given us, and this is our fourth point, an eternal covenant through his blood. By his blood, he's given us the benefit of an eternal covenant. Now, why do, we, why do we see that word, eternal covenant? Well, back in the, in the old covenant of the Old Testament, which was very much a, a physical covenant, 
um, with a lot, of, a lot of works that were done, still faith looking forward to, to a, a, a coming Messiah and faith in God to be the provider and to be the Savior. But it was a covenant based on sacrifice, and, and it was a covenant which you had to constantly sacrifice animals to try to cover your, 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 your sin. And, and God, though He was in the camp, was distant, if you remember. The, the tabernacle was designed to show His presence, but also His distance. You, you did not have access to the Holy of Holies where God dwelt, because Everyone was reminded of, of their sinful place, and they, they had no final Savior, no final sacrifice for their sins. Well, well here we, we see a promise in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, about a new covenant in which God would come and dwell with His people, not just in a, in a tent or in a, in a temple where there was still distance, but where God would actually come and dwell inside people's hearts. And so in Jeremiah 31, 33, three we read, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so on the night on which Jesus Christ was betrayed, Jesus had the last supper with his disciples in the upper room in which they broke bread, and, and they drank of the wine. And, and Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty that this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And after he rose from the dead, his disciples saw a pictorial representation of this new covenant when the Holy Spirit was poured out and came to dwell among them and in them. And if you remember in the Old Testament, God led His people through Sinai in a pillar of fire. There they saw a, a picture of God's presence, but it was a fearsome picture, a, a cloud of fire uh, near them and yet distant from them. You wouldn't want to get too close to the Shekinah glory of God lest you be consumed in the Old Testament. But what happened at Pentecost? That, that cloud of fire came down to little tongues of fire that individually indwelt God's people, representing his presence in us, not just in our camp, but in our, in our hearts. And so this eternal covenant that we have today means that if you are in Christ, you have a new, clean, pure heart before God. It means that you have a personal relationship with God that's based on Jesus' work on the cross. It means that you have the very Spirit of God living inside of you. And no matter how hard your life gets, you have the promise of eternal life free of sin and suffering. And so this is an internal and an eternal covenant. It was Jesus' blood that brought about this new covenant for all who trust in Him. And it is eternal. It cannot be undone. Like the, the old covenant was undone when it was superseded by the new covenant, this one is going to last for eternity. And so we are secure in our covenant relationship with Him if we are in Christ. So as we've looked at this one verse, verse 20, Mystery Man has reminded us of who God is. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. And now he continues and he tells us what God does. What God does. 
May, may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so there are several things that we see here that, that actually God does in us and, and through us. And the first is that he equips us to do his will. He equips us to do his will in our lives, in our daily lives. Now, we evangelical Christians, we Protestants, focus on God's grace. And it's good that we do that. Salvation is of the Lord, and and He gets all the glory, right? It is not salvation by God's grace plus human works and human merit. We kind of cooperate with God to to, kind of earn our way, meet God there. No, it's all of the Lord, salvation, right? It is a gift of God. We see this in in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. In which Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, if I participated, if, if, I, got, if I get partial credit for my salvation, I, I've got some, some bragging rights. And Paul's saying you have no bragging rights. This is all of the Lord, even the faith that you give, or even the faith that you exert, that you put in Jesus Christ, even that is a gift from my spirit. But Friday night, um, I was f- late Friday night flying back home from Louisville, and I sat next to a, a really sweet lady from Puerto Rico. And actually, honestly, she was the spitting image of Grandma Angie, for those of you who remember Grandma Angie. I mean, she looked just like Grandma Angie. She talked just like Grandma Angie. She had this amazing personality, and we spent the entire flight uh, just, just sharing with one another, talking with one another, talking about life. Uh, just an amazing story. And, and, but she was Catholic, and so we got to talking about Christ pretty, pretty, pretty quickly, um, and actually it was pr- pretty neat because um, super open heart, and I don't know, six or seven people around us who didn't have their ear, ear, ear pods in or whatever, they were able to kind of hear this as well. And, you know, it reminded me, our conversation in which actually she seemed to really get that it's not by works, but by faith in Jesus, as I was kind of talking about that. Um, but, you know, sometimes this, reminded, this conversation reminded me that sometimes we Protestants get accused of taking works too lightly, okay? Because we're so focused on God's grace, uh, it, it's almost like uh, what can come across to people is like, hey, all you got to do is just believe, just trust, just, you know, ask Jesus in your heart, and then you can do whatever you want, right? Sometimes we get accused of that. And I think some of that criticism is valid. Well, what we see in, in, in it here is that God has equipped us to do His will. It matters to Him how we live, that, that we Christians do His will. And what's neat is if you follow the progression of thought back in Ephesians chapter 2, it doesn't end with no one boasting and, and grace by faith alone. Verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when you look at this all together, you look at verse 10, you get this idea that we don't, we don't get any bragging rights for our good works either. God prepared those beforehand that we should walk in them. And he's the one who equips us to do those good works. But when God gives you a new heart through faith, he gives you a desire to please him a desire to do His will in your life. And so this is, this is salvation by grace alone that works. 
right? It, it, it changes life. It changes orientation. When you have a, a new heart, there's a desire out of love versus fear to please God. But let's for a moment consider that word equip. This is the very first word of Hebrews 13, 21, where, where he says, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Well, this, this word equip, the, the Greek word actually has an interesting range of meaning uh, from to perfect, to, to make good, to mend is another way that this Greek word is translated in the New Testament. So in Matthew 4, 21, we see this word used for fishermen mending their nets. And in Galatians chapter 6, 1, this, this Greek word for equip is actually used for the concept of restoring a brother. In other words, uh, putting, them back into, putting him back into his rightful place, a, a, a fallen brother right? In, in classical Greek, the word for equip is used for a doctor setting a bone. So that's interesting. Um, Pastor Kent Hughes describes its meaning, the meaning of the word equip, as to repair things so that they can be useful. The idea here is, may, may the Lord repair you so that you may be useful to do His will. Kent Hughes gives the example of, from his own life experience, of taking his grandchildren fishing. And, and I remember going fishing with my grandfather as a young boy. He had a little pond behind his home down in, in the Miami area. And I'll tell you what, I did the fishing, and he spent his time untangling my lines. Right? I was making a mess of it. Uh, and you know, I mean, you know, if, you've, if, if you've got young kids, you've probably experienced that too. I remember when my kids were younger, uh, coming back from the mission field and fishing off my dad's dock. He had a, he had a boat, and sometimes we'd go out deep sea fishing. What, they didn't get that interested in that, okay, trolling out there for the big stuff. They enjoyed, with a cane pole or a little, you know, kid's spinner rod, dropping uh, a little bit of bait down into the, into, the, into, the, into the water on Rocky Bayou and catching these little pinfish, you know. I mean, for them, that was exciting, just pulling those things up, and, and sometimes— they just pulled up. And I remember after a, I, 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 we had come back and I had gone up to Idaho for some security training stuff for a couple of weeks. And I came back and they just couldn't wait to go fishing with me. And I had one night and then we had to actually go back to Central Asia. Okay. And so they wanted to go fishing and, and my dad wasn't around and it, the, the bait store was closed or whatever. It was kind of in the evening. And there, there, was some, there was some old shrimp that had been left out for a few days and then put back in the freezer. And so I got to bait each hook with that incredibly effective bait. Let me tell you, the pinfish were just grabbing it left and right. They were pulling them in and pulling them up faster than I could rebait them. But that stuff got on my hands that when I got on the airplane the next day, uh, everybody for several rows was smelling me, okay? A, mu a week later, I was smelling myself. In fact, my wife wasn't that excited about sleeping too close to me, let's just say, all right? I stunk like smelly, rotten shrimp, Okay. But it was a great experience for the kids. They were, they were fishing, right? They were, they were doing it. But, but who was really doing it? Who was really equipping and making this whole thing possible? It was their father, right? Untangling those lines. Um, straightening out the messes. Um, giving them the ability. That's what God's equipping is like. He is the one who equips us to do His will. And that, and that, and that will means 
making a difference in people's lives for eternity. Well, maybe you're thinking or feeling with my weaknesses, with my sins, with the ways that I've messed up this very last week, how could God do anything amazing through me? Well, remember, it is His work in us and through us. It's the work of His Spirit. He's the one equipping us. He's the one untangling our, our, our mess of a, of, a, of a fishing line, right, and, and, and enabling us to fish. And, and here we see that He is working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So He's doing it through Jesus Christ in our lives. Remember Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what that means is that God knows you and designed you in a very specific way. We have different strengths and weaknesses and personalities, and God has specifically prepared good works for you to do in fulfilling your calling to do his will. And so the key here is abiding in Christ. You abide in Christ and the Holy Spirit will give you the power and he's going to show you the way so that you can make a difference in this world for Jesus Christ. So so don't give up. Don't drift and and keep your eyes on Jesus. And that's what we see the marvelous promise in the the first uh, part of Philippians. In Philippians 1.6 where Paul writes, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to use you. He he began the work. He's going to untangle that line. He's going to to use even the the mess of your life if you repent and look to him. He's going to equip you to do his will, to make a difference in people's lives. And he's going to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. The last thing we see here is that Jesus will be glorified. Now, maybe you don't like very much the way you see things going in our culture or in your world. Maybe you're discouraged. Well, don't worry, right? Don't become overcome with with anger or fear. Jesus is going to win in the end. Jesus will be glorified. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we see at the very end of our text, may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead or or who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do as will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We need to remember that, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is not the path. He's not just the path. He's the destination. Sometimes I think we we think of him as just the means to the end. But he's the end. He's the destination. God himself is the treasure of our hearts. And so the benediction here ends in verse 21 with amen. And and, and may it be so. This is true. May it be true in our hearts. And and maybe when you you read the end of this benediction, you think, man, 
Sounds like the end of the letter to me. But, but, and I think it was, actually. But then, then the author, mystery man here, remembers he has a few last words, a few more things he wants to say, right? So he kind of tacks it on here. After we've heard these soaring words about God, we have, we have some words for friends, some practical words for friends that I think we can learn from as well. So let's briefly look at these last several verses of the letter, verses 22 through 25. He writes, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Now that's a matter of um, opinion. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I will come. I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Well, several, several brief points I want to make as we land the plane of Hebrews here. Okay, We see once again that the exhortation is endurance. And you can leave these, these, uh, th- these last verses up on the screen if you would, brother. That'll, that'll help us out. The exhortation is endurance. There are storms in our lives, and if we're going to make it through those storms, we need to be anchored to the rock of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we will drift. We'll, we might even capsize and drown, all right? Um, we need to be anchored on the rock of Christ. And that means that we need to keep our eyes on him so we may faithfully run our race of faith. And what does that look like? What does endurance actually look like in the Christian life? Well, I'll tell you what. I think it means a whole lot, like thousands and ten thousands of prayers of repentance and of looking right back to Jesus, getting your eyes right back on Jesus and continuing to run that race with your eyes on him. So the exhortation is endurance. We also see here implied that Christianity is a brotherhood. And I don't mean to be sexist by that statement. You could say it's a sisterhood for you ladies, right? But it's a brotherhood. Christians are supposed to be like a band of brothers. Members of Rocky, your relationships with one another are essential. They're not just secondary. They, they're vital. And so invest in those relationships. Leaders of Rocky. Notice here, notice here that, that this, this pastor or apostle, whoever wrote this letter, mystery man, we don't really know who he was, um, he is writing to his brothers, right? Let's say it was Apollos. Uh, some people think it was Paul. Uh, you, they, they, could, they could clearly take kind of positional leadership and kind of talk down to everybody. But instead, you, you get this idea here that, that they're, they're leading from within the brotherhood. There's a close association with the brotherhood because this this person is writing to his brothers and actually he has some practical things these are real people with real lives and so he says hey timothy guess what timothy just got released from jail now i don't know um, why he was in jail it doesn't say but i'm pretty sure it wasn't for busting up banks it's probably for the sake of the gospel right that timothy would have been in jail now if you think about it uh, this leads, there are other reasons why I personally uh, don't think that Paul is the author. Now, some, you may have noticed a lot of parallels with some of the things Paul wrote. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the person who wrote Hebrews uh, probably knew Paul well, had probably been mentored by Paul or influenced by Paul. He'd probably read the book of Romans like a hundred times. But 
he, he writes in a in completely different style, for one. Uh, there's a lot of differences. But one of these things that's interesting to me here is that if you think about the last letter in the New Testament that we know Paul wrote, which was 2 Timothy, where Paul is in the Mamertine prison, right, about to be executed. Uh, history tells us that he, he had his head cut off, all right? And, and, and in 2 Timothy, the way Paul writes, he knows it's coming very soon. He, he talks about being poured out, about, you know, he's run his race, he's finished his race well, and he's about to go into glory, right? And what is, how does he urge Timothy? He urges Timothy to not be ashamed of him, the prisoner. He urges Timothy not to, not to give in to timidity, but to, to walk with, a, with not, not a spirit of fear, but one of, of power and love and a sound mind, to be bold, not to disassociate with the prisoner out of fear of what might happen to him. And so what do we see here implicit? That Timothy listened to what Paul had to say in some of his last words before he died, and that Timothy himself was bold and faithful and, and went to jail. So I, I'm thinking that probably this book was actually written after Paul's death, Probably very, uh, probably very near to A.D. 64 when we know that, that Nero came in and, and, and lit, uh, well, blamed the fire of Rome on the Christians and, and the, the advent of, of, perse- of the persecution in Italy and specifically in Rome became intense. So this, this letter was probably written on the eve of that, right before the persecution, which is already being turned up, um, uh, had jet fuel thrown on it. And so he's urging them to, to, to hold steady, to keep their eyes on Jesus, to, to endure even hardship. But this letter ends with a word of grace. By, gra- by God's grace, we are saved. By God's grace, we will endure in faith to the end. And by God's grace, we live every day. Christianity begins and it ends with grace. It is based on God's grace towards us. So let's make sure that we ourselves, the beneficiaries of His grace, are conduits of His grace to our broken world. That means we should stand for truth, but we need to stand for truth with a gospel focus as as people who are marked by grace. People not, might not like what we stand for or what we have to say, but they should, there should be no doubt in their minds that we are people of grace. It should be hard for the world to slander a Christian. Let's be more known for what we are for and, and who we are for than what we are against. So let's, let's be known as people who are for life and for families and for the salvation and the flourishing of all people from every tribe and nation. Let's be known as people who are for Christ and for His glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this this letter of grace. Your letter through an unknown person whom You inspired by Your Spirit to write urging and eyes on Jesus, urging endurance and faith, urging uh, moving forward in prizing our great high priest, our, our great shepherd, Jesus. Help us to, to follow this letter in our lives. And Lord, I pray for, for us, for your flock here at Rocky. I pray, Lord, that the God of peace 
who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. I pray that he would equip us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.